Girls Education International. This is the Girls Education International podcast, where we talk about educating girls around the world, women's empowerment, and all the topics in between. I'm Ana Yavanchief, your host for today. I'm talking with Anbreen Ajib, the Executive Director at Badari today. The Badari Foundation, based in Islamabad, Pakistan, is one of Girls Education International's partners, ensuring girls have access to education. We are so honored to partner with Badari and support the amazing work they are doing. Ambreen is a known women's rights activist, author of various publications around violence against women and girls and around child marriages, and is the current elected co-chair of Ending Violence Against Women and Girls Alliance, a national-level collaboration of CSOs coming together to advocate for policy reforms towards the rights of women and girls. And one more thing before we jump into the podcast. Girls Education International relies on donations from donors like you. Even if it's a small donation of $10, every little bit counts and goes very far in providing education to girls around the world. Please consider donating and visit www.girlsed.org to make your donation today. Now, on to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ambreen. In an effort to just jump right into this interview, would you please tell us how Bidari was founded? Bidari was founded by a group of concerned people, especially women, based in the capital city, Islamabad, who observed that there is no support available for the domestic violence issue because there was no legislation. There was huge acceptance of domestic violence as a common routine matter. So there was no reaction against it. And then the psychological trauma women go through when they face uh, domestic violence. So they got together to start it on voluntary basis. So it was established as a community-based organization in 1991. And then we got registered in 1992 with the government of Pakistan. So two major issues which we were working on initially were were gender-based violence and rape. And uh, the methodology of this work was that there there used to be huge number of volunteers to raise awareness by going to the communities. Then we had volunteer psychologists who would provide psychosocial support to women who are facing violence. So this was the program which we initially designed. There would be three services. One, psychosocial support to awareness at the community level to raise the awareness about domestic violence and harmful effects of domestic violence. And the third was to work on advocacy level to enhance the structures. So one of the credit which Bedari claims is that Bedari established the first crisis center in Islamabad, which was like one window center where there was referral for the shelter home, there were psychosocial support, there were legal aid, and there was awareness material for women who wanted to, a support group facility for women who wanted to work on that. And then we contributed in advocacy, advocating with the government to establish such centers from the government side. So the first crisis center, which government established, was designed by Bedari. And now there are shelter homes at all the district levels, which are following this Bedari's model, which provide legal aid and shelter and psychosocial support in one single premises. So this is how we started. Wow. So Bedari was founded by women who saw a need in their own community and decided to do something about it. That's a, that's a huge inspiration for people today, I think. Too often do we have people talk about wanting to do something versus 
actually creating the change they want to see in the world. Today, Badari works on more than violence against women, correct? With the passage of time, we learned that this domestic violence is not a standalone issue. We have to work on girls' education. We have to work right from the scratch, like empowering girls before they get married, empowering them to learn uh, how to negotiate, what is the leadership skills and negotiation skills which you would like, you would need when you are entering into married life. Then we learned that it's not only the girls' education, we uh, expanded our program towards economic empowerment. Then we expanded our program towards women's political participation in electoral systems, because if we have more women in the legal system and in the policy reforms, uh, policy making structures, of course, we expect more realization of the issue related to women's rights and related to gender-based violence. So how does this pertain to educating girls? I know that Badari has a hand in providing safe transportation for girls to go to school. Has that been impacted by COVID? Yes, of course, that was impacted by COVID because schools got closed and there was no transportation needed for a few months. So we, along with the in consultation with girls at team, we redesigned the activities which we could do. So we organized, uh, for example, self-defense trainings for girls or we organized different self-growth sessions with girls. So what we did was that we used to do it in a very safe environment with the social distancing intact. We did self-growth workshops with them. The girls, when they were staying at home, they, they, they became overburdened because of the domestic responsibilities, because they are supposed to deal with the work at home. They are supposed to support their mothers to do domestic chores. And then because fathers and the brothers and everybody was at home. So they became overburdened as well. So they were psychologically stressed. So they needed this type of outlet where they can go, they can sit and they can talk about themselves. Wow. That's incredible. (laughs) That's awesome (laughs) that you guys were able to continue providing services to the girls, even during like such trying times with COVID. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Many women face the threat of sexual and domestic violence around the world, including within Pakistan, right? Can you tell us how prevalent that is in Pakistan and how it might differ from the rest of the world? Well, uh, in terms of domestic violence, I would say that when it comes to not only physical violence, if if we consider the psychological violence and sexual violence within uh, within the domestic setting, I would say that almost every woman, every married woman, faces domestic violence to some extent in one way or the other in Pakistan. And um, and most of it is, of course, physical violence is quite visible, but the psychological violence by the husbands, like always traumatizing the women or degrading the women or undermining her capacities, this always is there. Bedari provides psychosocial support to women and we have observed that women from all these segments of society, be it elite class, be it the poorest of the poor class, all the women from all the segments of society face domestic violence at some point. However, the reporting mechanisms are not very good. And then the legal system to address domestic violence is still quite weak and they need to do a lot. There are There were laws passed in some of the provinces which are quite healthy laws, but in 
all over the country we don't have because we don't we have this this domestic violence is or all the women rights subject is a provincial subject so provinces are authorized to make the laws so some provinces have made the laws to address domestic violence while others have not so we have to still work basically get the better laws and raise awareness among people working at the policy level can make huge structural changes for girls and women and then there's the cultural level too right the second problem with domestic violence is that there is a huge acceptance i mean it is okay for people if a husband hates a wife it is okay and they would actually ask women to submit and women to basically live with the guy and accept it as a fate because he is the provider and he is the main leader of the house so he has all the rights secondly there is a huge stigma attached to divorce so the fear of divorce and fear of getting divorce is really high among women so that is why they keep on accepting this as their fate and they don't speak up well in terms of sexual violence there was a report in 2017 by human rights commission of pakistan that a woman is raped every 2 hours as per reported cases oh my god so they, these are the reported cases only which are yeah. reported either on media or in the to the police stations Yeah and there's tons Sorry. of unreported cases i would imagine right so it's even higher yes, than 2 yes, hours yes yeah estimate is that uh, only 10% cases are reported most of the cases are hidden oh my god and then these are the rape cases and forget about the sexual harassment which is always there we have very comprehensive law in pakistan to address sexual harassment at workplace and sexual harassment at public places but because the stigma is attached with women and there's a huge tendency of victim blaming all the myths related to sexual harassment common and worldwide are prevailing in pakistan as well so that is why to avoid that victim blaming and all that post uh, reporting torture they prefer not to report it and then child sexual abuse is again is a very high prevalent crime in pakistan although there are very strong steps taken by the government like for example they have uh, established different apps to report if the girls if the child is missing and a quick response is provided and to me i think it is the reporting that has increased because if one case is highlighted in media and then the government takes serious action on that this gives encouragement to other people as well if they face such problems they will go and report so That's- reporting of these cases has increased drastically so but on the other side in pakistan the conviction rate of the rape criminals is really low they have to work on that as well is there yeah. a lot of pushback against the work you're doing to lessen violence towards women and children i think that people are okay with this in general especially the government because we the work we do is all done in close consultation with the government so okay. if the government is involved in that for example if we provide if we do advocacy on some legislation we try to engage them and help them in drafting the legislation as well that's awesome so we we on their behalf we sometimes hold consultations as well where of course the credit will go to them the parliamentarians who will present the law but we provide technical assistance to them mm-hmm. so i think in most of the cases they there is a support available but on the other side of course the society is 
not very welcoming about talking about anything related to gender-based violence or rape or domestic violence and anything. So they think that it is actually defaming. There is a, a notion that the NGOs who work on violence against women, they are actually defaming the country. So our argument on that is that we are not defaming the country. We are working to address that. For example, if I am talking about the issues, I'm also talking about the steps taken by the government, which are useful. And we are also helping them to take some more steps to address that. So that is what government can do. The only thing any government can do is the is making the law in favor of the person who is the victim and who is the survivor of this type of crimes. I agree. I 100% agree with that. There's been studies that show that girls and women tend to doubt themselves more than men. And would you say that this is an example of psychological violence potentially? And could that hinder girls from becoming educated or wanting to become educated? Yeah, to me, psychological violence, the cases I deal with, most of the time they include criticism, always criticizing women because most of the women are involved in domestic chores and they are supposed to do cooking and managing homes and looking after the children and all that. So in most of the cases, it is the criticism which they receive all the time uh, for not making tasty food, for example. Sometimes for not being well-mannered or you don't know much about things. It, it varies from rural areas to urban areas. For example, in rural areas or if they are uneducated, then most of the time the criticism is for them being uneducated. And if they are educated, then the criticism is that you are trying to impose your knowledge and you being educated to us. Then if they work outside, then even then they are expected to do the household chores. If they are working from nine to five, They are expected to come back and cook. And if the child is uh, sick or something, then she is supposed to take off from the the office or from wherever she is working. It's not husband's responsibility to look after, even if the woman is earning more. Even then, she will be responsible for that. Then if she's earning, it is not expected that she can ask something from the husband. She's supposed to spend all the money to to the house. Whereas the husband feels relieved and they spend their money on their own needs and all that. So I think this is something which makes them psychologically overburdened and then they need psychological support. In rural areas, the psychological support is usually not available professionally, but then there is a domestic violence, for example, is not a personal matter in in many cases, as, as in urban cases, you know. People think that it is their personal matter. But in rural areas, women have more room for doing catharsis, for going and talking to someone. This this is not something confidential. They would just open up their heart to any other women in the neighborhood and speak about it and throw their anger. So there there is a kind of social support system in, in in an informal way. But in urban areas, it is mostly considered as an as a personal issue. People don't interfere in the personal lives of each other, usually in the neighborhood as well. So they feel more pressure and they need more professional support in many cases. So they need somebody who can, who will not judge them and who will not actually tag them to be somebody who is psychologically upset or something. So this is how um, it varies from in different classes as well as in different areas. That's so interesting. Something you said about like, making the woman like codependent 
on the man, but like it's all psychological kind of that reinforcement of like yeah. criticism to the point where the woman kind of like puts her value in somebody else. That's that's really heartbreaking. Yeah. Does this threat of violence hinder girls from becoming educated? I think yes, this is a major hindrance. And uh, violence is one of the major contributor towards girls hindering them from education, seeking education. For example, if they see their mothers being facing violence from their fathers, they prefer to stay at home and help women. And when their studies get disturbed, they think that they, the result get disturbed, they get poor results in the education. And many times they decide to leave education just because of that. So this psychological burden on girls is also something which affects them in seeking their education. Did you know, according to a study conducted by the Population Action International Organization, in the 112 countries for which data was available, 76 million more boys than girls are attending school worldwide. It is Girls Education International's goal to try to lessen this number and create a more equitable education where girls and boys can equally have the opportunity to learn. So we've talked a lot about violence against women in Pakistan. What lessons from your experience working to reduce violence against the women could we take to reduce or better yet eliminate violence against women everywhere? Well, uh, one lesson which we have learned and we are implementing and we think that it is our best practice is engaging men and boys. Because when you talk to men and boys about gender-based violence and its harmful effects on the families, and it's not only about women, it is about them as well, they are the decision makers. So if they are sensitized enough, they can actually contribute in reducing violence. So whenever I do sessions with men, I really, my hope really goes up because if two out of 10 are sensitized enough to say say no to violence against women, I feel like it is the job well done because they, when they go back, it's not only them, but they influence, influence their peers as well. I think one learning is engaging with men very effectively. It's, for example, we try to transform masculinity. For example, there is no honor in killing or beating women. The honor is basically about respecting them. Secondly, we try to give them leadership, for example, at community level. When we give leadership to men to basically identify where is the violence occurring and why is it occurring, they own it. They own the issue. So this is how we try to engage them. On the other side, the self-growth workshops, which we do with women and girls, to empower them, to explore their own potentials, to enhance their negotiation skills and to help them understand what to talk and when to talk and how to convince their families and negotiate in a better way. So this is how we try to work with them. And this has worked really good. So Badari has found success working with men and women at the personal and community level. Tell us a little more about the policy level then. Earlier, you shared with us that uh, placing women into parliament and government is very important. Engaging women parliamentarians, especially, helping them to contribute towards legislative process. This brings effects from two ways. On one way, they as women parliamentarians feel empowered enough 
to understand and to show their performance within the parliament. You know, there is a discrimination within men and women parliamentarian as well. So that is why they feel empowered because they have done good job. They are bringing good legislation. They are trying to negotiate. So it empowers them as women politicians. On the other side, within the political parties to basically they try to convince the men in their own political parties to support that particular legislation or bill or any change which they want to do. So this is how we try to engage them. So I think these are the few lessons which we, we would like to carry on. Oh, absolutely. I and the girls ed team are in full support of seeing more legislation passed worldwide that empowers women. The girls education is something which really helped us. The value we add from our perspective is that we try to hold different workshops with girls. We try to engage them in other projects which we are implementing in the same area. We identify the girls for girls ed project from the areas where we are implementing other projects as well. So we invite them to different seminars and webinars and the events and try to give them leadership and help them understand their skills, where they can volunteer their potential, their skills. So they volunteer their services in terms of organizing that event at the community level or sometimes at district level as well. We invite them to even national level activities where they come and learn and see different programs. So this is something which actually is adding value in empowering them because education in Pakistan itself is quite discriminatory. The curriculum is discriminatory and it strengthens the typical, stereotypical gender roles. So we, we try to bring them out of those typical gender roles and we try to help them develop their leadership skills. So I think this is something which we really would like to carry on. I am in full support of breaking gender roles. I think it is so important to uplift and support children in their education journeys, boys and girls equally, as they represent the potential for the future in this world. Another thing that we worked on a little bit with girls that are like we brought up in like a couple of meetings recently was this topic on child marriages and how yes. like whenever you educate girls and women the trend shows that child marriages tends to go down and goal number five of the UN sustainable development goals is to achieve this gender equality empower all women and girls and right now they currently believe that about up to 10 million girls will be at risk of child marriage over the next decade as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is in addition to the 100 million girls that were already projected to become child brides before the pandemic even occurred. So what is Badari's experience with fighting against child marriages? I know that you have done, you've done a lot of work on this. I've like read your bio. And you seem to be such a champion for women. I'm so excited to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, that is right. That child marriage was a very serious issue in Pakistan, has been a very serious issue, and it, it, is, it still is. But we have been working on the issue for the last 10 years. Initially, we started a program called Girl Power Program. And what made us work on this issue was that when we were, we were working on domestic violence, we observed that in most of the cases, it were the girls who were married at very early age 
they were not ready to resume the responsibilities of a girl married girl because in this part of the world all south asia it's not only the marriage between a boy and a girl it is a marriage between two families and the expectations are from the whole family so that is why it was important to basically understand that the girls are not ready to take those responsibilities of all in laws and then child bearing was another challenge that sometimes a child is a mother of a child if it is a 17 years old girl having a baby of course she's a child and she's having a child so this is how, this was the learning from our work around domestic violence so we thought to develop a program on girl power and the girls education program which we started was part of this that we observed that if a, if a girl is supported to complete her secondary education 10th grade education she's already 16 so if she is 16 at that time of course she can delay her marriage for at least one year or two and at least she will be able to understand the responsibilities because the girls in some of the areas are married as soon as they reach puberty so that is something very serious it is not very common practice but in some areas it's very common that as soon as the girl reaches puberty they tend to marry her off so we started working around that and we picked education as a solution or as an alternate for the parents to send their daughters to school and if they complete their metric education secondary education they'll be able to negotiate in a better way so we initiated this program with a very small funding from an organization called ANCP and it was based in Greece so they supported us for 30 girls so then we experimented that and we got very good results because the parents not only supported those girls to complete their education but if there were some younger girls in their family they were sending them to school as well on their own so that was something which we we tried to change the trend and in last 10 years this was very small sport in one district but then we continued with girls ed and so far we have completed more than 1000 girls who completed secondary education with support from bedaris program in last 10 years although it is a very small number but this 1000 girls were taking direct support but on the other side the impact was very huge because if a girl from a poor family is going to school of course the parents who can afford the education they were more they were also motivated for that and they thought that if that poor family and poor girl can go to school why not our why can't our girls so they started sending their girls to school as well so this has started changing a trend among people in the community so that is that is what i believe that has contributed in the reduction of child marriage in the areas we work in for the last 5 years we implemented a specific program on child marriage in the communities and the communities which were selected child marriages were very highly prevalent in those communities in the baseline the prevalence was i think it was 37% and in 5 years in the end line it was below 18% Wow. Secondly, we've also worked on the advocacy side, and we worked closely with the parliamentarians to to change the law. The law was very weak in terms of when it comes to child marriage, so we tried to change the law. And now there is a relatively improved law in Punjab, 
And in one other province, Sindh, there is a very strong law where the legal age of marriage is 18 and the ones who do not follow that law are punishable, including the person who registered the marriage and the parents of boy and parents of the girl. So groom and the bride, both parents from the both side can be punished under that law. Similarly, in Punjab, where we work, the law is like legal age of marriage is still 16, which we are still advocating to increase. But then on the other side, they increase the punishments for the people who marry their girls under the age of 16. So that also contributed. So, and then secondly, one phenomenon which we observed as, an, as a byproduct of the work we were doing was that when a girl completes her secondary education, and if she shows good results, parents are more inclined to help her out in going for higher education as well, for example, 11th grade and 12th grade and all that. Some of the girls we also supported, but then in many cases, the girls try tend to get more education on their own as well. There are systems, mechanisms of distant education as well, where the girls don't need to go to the college or to higher schools. They can sit at home, study and appear in the exams. So this is also a, a support for the rural girls who do not want to go to the college and who cannot afford to the hostel fees and all that. Mm -hmm. So yes, education, of course, contributed in reduction of child marriage. That's amazing. I love to hear yeah. those success stories. And a thousand girls is not a little number, in my opinion. I think that's a huge number. I think that's awesome. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. actually, another thing I wanted to clarify and something you mentioned in the very beginning of our interview was, is Badari the only crisis center for Pakistan or now is there a lot more? It was the first though, oh, right? There are many. Okay. Yeah, we were the first one. But now uh, the government runs a crisis center in each district, one crisis center in each district. So it is now government. We work with those shelters now. So Badari no longer provides shelter services, but works with other established shelters now to help provide those services. Cool. Uh, we are continuing with our psychosocial support and legal aid and all that. But for shelters, we are working with them. And secondly, we provide support to the government to strengthen those shelter homes as well in terms of sensitivity and sensitization of the staff and training and capacity building. So we work with them as well. Wow, that's awesome. You pioneered a whole movement and that's incredible. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Wow. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yes. Well, those are all the questions I have for you today, but I feel like I could talk to you about so many other things. You seem like a wealth of knowledge, Audrey, <laughs> and I'm so, I'm so glad you're able to make this interview. Thanks for listening in today. Check out the Girls Ed blog at girlsed.org to learn more about our impact and follow our social media on Facebook and Instagram at Girls Education International. Again, please consider donating so we can keep uplifting girls around the world. I'm your host, Ana Ivanchi, and I'm wishing you an empowering day ahead. <laughs>